from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Carol Flood on August 3, 2015. Carol has an MS in Environmental Management and Policy from RPI in Troy, New York. She has taught sustainability and environmental science at McDaniel College in Westminster, Maryland, and was a team member designing and implementing a new environmental policy and science program there. She has worked for the Nature Conservancy, mapping endangered species and ecological communities, and she has built cob and straw bale structures. She holds a permaculture design certificate and has spent several years using permaculture and edible landscaping to design her yard. She has started a Northwest Earth Institute discussion circle in Carroll County, Maryland, which has evolved into the group Sustainable Carroll County Community. She helped facilitate the first Wilmette Institute course on sustainable development and the prosperity of humankind. We talk about her work with the Wilmette Institute and the Baha'i perspective on the environment in the interview. I started the interview by asking Carol where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in the Finger Lakes of New York State. I grew up as a Baha'i and uh, my family was always very close to nature, camping and, and so on. And I also had several personal family losses of close family members, and I think as I look back on that, I think that kind of helped me to be closer to nature because in my life that was a stable um, influence. It was always something I could turn to and find a sense of peace in. So that's sort of the, the context of how I grew up and became aware of environmental issues and so on. Right. So how was it? that your parents became Baha'is? They passed away when I was a child, so a little bit of that is lost. I had some other family members that were Baha'is. I believe that my mother and father became Baha'is through my aunt, who was friends with Stanwood Cobb, who was um, a pretty well-known Baha'i and author from the early 1900s into the 1970s. I'm not sure when he passed away, but we met him several times in the 1970s. So I think that's how it, how it happened. So how old were you when your parents passed away? I was four when my father passed away and nine when my mother passed away. What were the circumstances of you losing your parents at such a young age? Well, my father had liver disease and my mother developed cancer a few years later and and passed away. Wow. I ended up being taken care of. I had aunts and uncles and some foster families that helped me get by and grow up. How many siblings did you have? One. I have an older brother. Mm-hmm. So it sounded like you moved around a lot. Yes, we did. We had, as I said, a couple of relatives that we stayed with temporarily, and then they were older, so we ended up going into the foster care system for a while, too. And how was that? There's a variety of family situations. I certainly know of people that have much, much worse. You know, I learned to adjust to different situations. You still were raised as a Baha'i through your other relatives. 
Yes, yes, we have several aunts and uncles who are Baha'is, and then they've already been part of the Baha'i community. They were there, was part of my life, even when I lived with other families that were not Baha'is. It was for two years or so that you were in the foster care system? Probably seven or eight years. So were you able to maintain your Baha'i identity during that time? You know, for Baha'is, when you reach the age of 15, you sort of make a decision whether you want to continue to be a Baha'i. And interestingly, I was living with a family who um, was very much against the Baha'i faith when I happened to be turning 15, and they said, you know, you can no longer continue to go to Baha'i activities unless you also go to church with us. And so at that point, I said, well, of course I want to be a Baha'i. <laughs> My rebellious teenager side kicked in, and I said, oh, yes, I am a Baha'i. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there were many other reasons why I wanted to be a Baha'i at that point, too. I know that, as you said, that one of the teachings of the Baha'i faith is the independent investigation of truth and discovering for yourself what it means to be a Baha'i. And it sounds like maybe it was even earlier than 15 that you reached that decision that the Baha'i faith belonged to you rather than just being your family's religion? Yes, yes, actually, that is true. My mother, who had passed away, I think was a big influence on me uh, anyway, even though she wasn't there at that time. She was very spiritual. and I guess there's a sense of faith that you gain when... You lose a parent, well, you have a choice, I suppose, to either get angry at God or um, to work through that and just have a sense of faith that there's a purpose behind it, even if we don't understand the loss. And somehow, I guess I felt connected to my mother enough to feel that her soul was continuing and her sense of spirituality I felt very close to. And so I think that was probably the strongest feeling that I had about the Baha'i faith and my faith in general. After high school, what did you do? Well, I went to college. I wasn't completely sure what I wanted to do, but I I was somewhat interested in elementary education. So I studied that at the State College of New York at Oneonta. That was my first round of college study. Did you go right into graduate school, or did you work for a while, or...? Well, it's a very convoluted sort of path that I took. I went to work after I graduated with my bachelor's degree. I finished my master's degree in educational psychology and then worked some other kinds of different jobs. I ended up teaching seventh grade language arts for several years. And then in the 1980s, I became concerned about environmental issues. There were so many that were becoming very big news in the media, like ozone depletion and acid rain and so on. And I had moved from a rural area to a more urban area and was kind of alarmed at all of the um, real estate development and loss of natural places. So I made the jump to go back to school and study sciences and eventually get my master's degree in environmental management and policy. I'm surprised that you having such a close relationship with nature growing up that you didn't consider going into that field of study in college. Well, that's a good question. I think that I was very turned off by the mechanistic approach of some sciences. For instance, in in high school, I, I was very repulsed by the idea of dissecting 
animals and having them preserved. So one thing that I was very sensitive always to was the suffering of animals, probably having something to do with my background. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like science didn't really take into consideration the spiritual connection that humans can have with nature. So I I think I just wasn't drawn to that. I, I guess also some of my better teachers were probably in the humanities, and so I, you know, was drawn to that mm-hmm. in a way that I wasn't to science. And so what was your experience when you were going for your master's degree? I was teaching seventh grade language arts, and I decided to go and try a few science and math classes at a community college first to see if I liked them and if I did well enough. And I actually liked them very much at that point. I did have one biology professor. I was an adult learner at that point, and I said... I was not comfortable with dissecting. And she said, oh, no no problem, I understand. So I was able to approach the biology class in a different way. So that encouraged me. But yeah, I, I really liked it. And then I managed to, through another long series of, mm-hmm. of mishaps, basically, I ended up at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York, studying two different environmental programs there. I started out with an urban planning major, and then that department actually folded, and I ended up switching to environmental management and policy, which is actually a program that was intended to help train people to green businesses, to um, go to work in large corporations, and it set up greening programs, which I never ended up doing, (laughs) but that was what I studied. (laughs) So what did you do with your education after you graduated with your master's? Well, it took me a couple of part-time jobs first to find the first job that I worked at in the field, and that was working with the Nature Conservancy as a mapper of endangered species and communities for New York State. And I got married around that time and ended up leaving that job to follow my husband to Oregon. And what did you do in Oregon? Well, I wasn't working. One way my husband got me to move out there is to say that I could do what I wanted to do. So while I was out there, though, I I got involved with uh, natural building, which is like straw bale and cob, looking at also more traditional building practices, only the greener version of them, like bamboo flooring and uh, and that sort of thing. So I volunteered at a, uh, a small organization called the Cobb Cottage Company, so I did some volunteer work in the office, and I also got my hands on the cob, too, which is a kind of sort of a plastery material made with mud and straw and so on. So that was and artistic in a way that I, you know, that I had never experienced before, too. And straw bale is building structures with bales of straw? Yes. My husband had thought he might be there for more than one year, but ended up in his position. They didn't need him any further. Then we moved to Maryland, and once I moved to Maryland, I worked on building a straw bale house also. Um, Very hard work, very hands-on, and delightful in that sense, because I had always done head work and, you know, office-type things, and this was really about getting my hands dirty, and there's a great sense of satisfaction to actually participate in building a house. Was this for a private owner? Yes. You did some work for the Carroll County? community while you were out there? I guess in terms of volunteer work, many years ago, I started a Northwest Earth Institute discussion group, and they 
basically give you study guides and you uh, meet regularly with a group. It's sort of like a book club, I guess. You, know, you read different things and have a discussion on how you can change your own life and your community by what you've learned. So we did, I think, three different discussion guides we went through. You know, I just, by word of mouth, found a bunch of people that wanted to do that. Several years later, I met Christine Muller, who also teaches the climate change course with the Lama Institute, and she had just put together a, a discussion course on climate change. So I immediately got a hold of <laughs> what she had put together. I rounded up a, a couple of Baha'is in the community and a religious studies professor at local college and um, a Christian woman who found out about it too. And so, we, you know, it's a small group, but we got together and we met once a month and went through this discussion course. Had some fantastic conversations. Two or three years later, when it became clear that climate change was really kind of heating up, bad pun there, but... <laughs> I felt like I had to do something else again. And so I got together some of the same people that were in the original group and contacted some people from the original Earth Institute discussion group. So we started getting together on a, a monthly basis to watch films about climate change and have discussions about how we can work in our community to make a difference. And we also had a social part of it we'd have potlucks, mm -hmm. and then we would also have a spiritual part of it so that we would always read some sort of inspiring quote from a religion or um, anybody who was inspiring. Just have the uplifting part of it because the climate change news is not uplifting at all. So at this point, we decided we wanted to educate the community. We're currently working on making a film about climate change in Carroll County. And we're going to be interviewing some local people and trying to educate, but also find out from the people who live here, a great majority of whom are farmers, what their perceptions of climate change are and what they're seeing, if anything, what kind of action they would like to take or are planning to take. Mm -hmm. And you're saying that the group evolved into something called Carroll County Community, is that what the group evolved to? Uh, well, we don't have a great name. <laughs> we never come up with a great name. So yeah. we just said it was the Carroll County Climate Change Group, so we call it 4CG. So if people from your area would like to join you, how would they get in contact with the group? Well, they could contact me, and I can give you my email address. Um, it's just carolflood19 at yahoo.com. So that's C-A-R-O-L-E. F-L-O-O-D-1-9 at yahoo.com. And we also have a meetup.org group joined through there as well. So when they go up to meetup.org, is there something they should search for? Carroll County Climate Change. In the process of putting together a Facebook page, but we haven't completed that yet. All right. Well, it sounds like it's still somewhat in its infancy. Yes. Uh, you mentioned the Wilmette Institute, and... I guess you're a faculty member of the Wilmette Institute. I was wondering if you could just say a few words of what the Wilmette Institute is and what's your involvement with it. The Wilmette Institute is a high-inspired um, educational institute that sponsors 
courses on a wide variety of subjects. Originally, I was a faculty member for a course called Sustainable Development and the Prosperity of Humankind, which is also going to be offered starting in September of this year. I think the first course was maybe in 2007. I was on the faculty for that course for several years, and then the climate change course came up. Christine Muller, who had put together the uh, original group discussion packet, is the lead faculty in the, the climate change course for WellMet also. So I teach both of those. What was the name of the first one again? Sustainable Development and the Prosperity of Humankind. Right. So if somebody wanted to know what that course would cover, what would the course of Sustainable Development and the Prosperity of Humankind be? It is a combination of several different ideas. And I would say from my perspective, I have a background in some sciences and as an environmentalist concerned for the earth. For years, the environmental movement looked primarily at physical impacts of human culture. At a certain point, people began to realize that environmental issues have social and cultural and economic causes, also that the solutions lie in looking more closely at what our cultures and our economics, how, how we practice our economics and what our cultures are composed of. So it's a combination of looking at all of those different factors with, of course, the root being our spiritual perceptions of things. In other words, if we feel that conventional sense that our economics are based on survival of the fittest and whoever can get ahead the most, that's going to have an impact on the environment and becomes part of our culture. It's also a spiritual issue in that, you know, I think as Baha'is we look at economics as something that we need to make sure that everyone in our community is cared for that we don't have extremes of wealth and poverty. It's all connected. It's all linked. So we look more at systems and how they operate. There's a whole science of systems science and it analyzes how everything is connected. And so we, we touch on that and sort of the history of sustainable development and efforts on an international level to correct some of these problems that we've developed. If someone wanted to take your course on climate change, how would you describe that course? That also covers a lot of ground. We look at the science of climate change from looking at what the science says. 97% of climate scientists agree that climate change is happening, that it's man-made. We look at some of the arguments that the small minority of people have against climate science why the media handles it the way it does. Uh, we also look at not only the high teachings on the environment, but also many other world religions. We look at the moral imperative to take action, to avert climate change as much as we can. Much of it, we've gone past turning points in, in a lot of cases on, on certain things, but how can we as individuals and communities take action to slow down the climate change. And we look at statements from various religions. The Baha'i international community has made many statements about climate change. 
certainly we're going to need to add the hope's recent statement on climate change. We're looking at how to avert climate change, but also how it is currently affecting communities around the world and what is expected to happen in the future and how do we handle that as communities. For instance, one thing that we're talking about in our local group is if people start moving away from the coast because of sea level rise and they start coming to our community, how will we greet them? You know, I mean, that's also a spiritual uh, issue in a sense. So it can be a little overwhelming at times because there's so much material, the science, the social science, the spirituality, but it's all there and it's wonderful to have other people that you can have discussions with about it. I strongly encourage anybody that's slightly interested to please join us. You made an interesting comment that I wanted to explore a little bit. You had said that the media, in some way, portraying climate change in a way that you had some concerns? Yes, absolutely. Can you elaborate on that? I've been thinking about this a lot today, actually. I think that we come from a certain vantage point to climate change. You know, it's probably a spectrum, but... I think many people come to understand climate change in the context of concern over the environment and humanity's relationship to the environment in general. And if you see other issues, if you're aware of endangered species or loss of habitat or you've been impacted by, um, you know, a polluted river from a coal mine, you know, you're already aware of the assaults that human communities can have on the earth. So I think people like that tend to be much quicker to see the signs and the uh, the evidence, I guess is the word I'm looking for, of climate change happening on the earth. There also is a segment of our population that is skeptical of scientists. Some people might call it sort of an anti-intellectualism. And there has been reason to be suspicious of some scientists or some evidence of, you know, manipulation of data for political reasons or or whatever. So there's that. And I think in general, there's a problem in our culture of not understanding how science works. So for instance, I've heard people say, well, how can scientists say that the entire global climate is changing when they can't even predict the weather? What's true is that those things are measured and predicted in very different ways. There are very different uh, scientific processes that are used to come to conclusions for each of those things. From what I understand, there is kind of a small segment of the population that is suspicious that climate change science or that climate change is happening from man-made sources. You know, they're very vocal, and I think there's a lot of passion behind the suspicions that they have of climate science for various reasons. So the media tends to, you know, they have this obligation to weigh opposing sides equally. In fact, it's not equal. You know, we've developed this culture of contest or opposition. We want to debate. The reality is that almost all of our scientists agree, and yet the media puts out this other side as being valid in some ways. Although I do think that is changing in recent months. I think a lot more of the media has started to, to 
to focus on the realities of climate science and the impacts of climate change. So one of the problems is that in many parts of the United States, we're not feeling the effects of climate change yet. So here in Carroll County, if you're very in tune, like my, my husband and I have been bird watchers for a long time, and you can see the changes in the population or the populations of certain bird species over years. So some of it's just natural fluctuation, but some of it you can see is changing pretty drastically. But that's subtle. The, you know, the majority of people are not going to maybe notice that. However, if you live in the Arctic or if you live on an island nation and you're losing your homeland because of sea level rise, then you're very aware of that. So I think in the past year or so, a broader segment of the media has started to focus some of those realities that not everybody feels yet we're morally obligated, I think, to take action to avert more of that same problems. I think that the media thrives on controversy. And as you said, it puts undue focus on a position that's probably a very minority position within the population, but because they thrive on controversy, they they amplify it. Yes, that's absolutely true. Carol, if someone came up to you and asked you, Carol, what is the Baha'i perspective on climate change, or maybe even more broadly, what is the Baha'i perspective on the environment? I don't think there is one Baha'i perspective, first of all. I think that well-intentioned people can come to that question in in various ways. A lot of our perspectives as Baha'is, well, I suppose all of them are influenced by the cultures that we live in, so that's a big part of how we approach that that question. I remember growing up thinking that there was a, a, a huge separation between the earth or nature in terms of spirituality. You know, I remember hearing people say, well, the earth is a dust heap. And I think that's from a quote from the Baha'i writings. Relatively speaking, compared to the spiritual world, I guess people were saying that we are not connected to nature. You know, we want to strive to to go beyond nature. You know, I think that was culturally based. For quite a while, I was very disturbed by that when I started realizing all the environmental problems that we have. And, of course, my feeling of connection to, you know, all creatures and their suffering and whole species going extinct and that sort of thing. You know, you can take the perspective of, well, those things don't matter, and we are striving for a spiritual life that is holy, that has nothing to do with the earth. Over time, I have come to see that the Baha'i teachings say kind of the opposite of that, that nature is spiritual. One of the quotes from Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, is that, and I don't know if I'm going to get it exactly right, but it's, nature is God's will and his expression in and through the contingent world. And there are other statements in the Baha'i teachings that nature reflects God's qualities. So we all reflect God's qualities, and humans are sort of at the apex of that because we have the capability of reflecting all of God's attributes. However, everything in nature also reflects God's attributes. And so we are connected in that sense that we are all a reflection of God's attributes. 
I've also recently been reading um, two books by, um, I'm sure I'm not going to pronounce it correctly, but Nadir Saidi. One is called Logos and Civilization about the writings of Baha'u'llah, and the other one is called Gate of the Heart on the writings of the Bab, the forerunner of Baha'u'llah. And he's analyzed their writings, and there's so many statements in there about how it's important in, throughout all of the writings of the Bab of Baha'u'llah to treat nature with respect care for it, because as we are capable of caring for the earth in a way that no other creatures are, so it's our responsibility to care for all of the earth. Special mention is made of water. Actually, very interestingly, the Bob in the Bob's writings, he talks about how it's our responsibility to help every created thing. I think the, the phrase is to attain its paradise. So in other words, every created thing has a purpose, and it's our responsibility as human beings to help it reach that purpose. And the purpose of water is to be pure. It's a symbol of God's laws. And so we need to make sure that it, as a symbol, it is pure and we're not polluting our waters. So there are things all throughout the Baha'i teachings that, um, that are similar to that. Carol, I want to thank you for sharing your story and your thoughts about the environment. Thank you very much. Oh, sure. Thank you for asking. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Carol Flood, an environmentalist that has started a number of initiatives at the community level to bring awareness to climate change and is a faculty member at the Wilmette Institute. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Give me
whole world addicted to the drama. Only attracted to things that'll bring the trauma. Overseas, yeah, we trying to stop terrorism. But we still got terrorists here living in the USA, the big CIA. The bloods and the crips and the KKK. But if you only have love for your own race, then you only leave space to discriminate. And to discriminate only generates hate. And when you hate, then you're bound to get irate. Yeah, madness is what you demonstrate. And that's exactly how anger works and operates. Man, you gotta have love just to set it straight. Take control of your mind and meditate. Let your soul gravitate to the love, y'all, y'all. People killing, people dying. Children hurt and you hear them crying. And you practice what you preach. And what you turn the other cheek. Father, 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 help us. Send some guidance from above. These people got me, got me questioning. Where is the Change. New days are strange. Is the world insane? If love and peace are so strong, why are the pieces of love that don't belong? Nations dropping bombs, chemical gases filling lungs of little ones with ongoing suffering. As the youth are young, so ask yourself, is the loving really gone? So I could ask myself, really, what is going wrong in this world that we living in? People keep on giving in, making wrong decisions, only visions of them dividends. Not respecting each other, denying thy brother. A war is going on, but the reason's undercover. The truth is kept secret. It's swept under the rug. If you never know truth, then you never know love. What's the love, y'all? Come on. What's the truth, y'all? Come on. I don't know. What's the love, y'all? People killing, people dying. Children hurt and living crying. And you practice what you preach. And what you turn the other cheek. Father, 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 help us. The world on my shoulder As I'm getting older Your people gets older Most of us only care About money making Selfishness got us Following the wrong direction Wrong information Always shown by the media Negative images Is the main criteria Infecting the young minds Faster than bacteria Kids wanna act like What they see in the cinema Young Whatever happened to the values of humanity Whatever happened to the fairness and equality Instead of spreading love, we're spreading animosity Lack of understanding leading us away from unity That's the reason why sometimes I'm feeling under That's the reason why sometimes I'm feeling down It's no wonder why sometimes I'm feeling under Gotta keep my faith alive till love is found Now ask yourself Where is the love? Where is the love? Where is the love? All we got one word, one word. And something's wrong with it. Yeah. Something's wrong with it. Yeah. Something's wrong with the good world, world. Yeah, we only got one word, one word. And so we got one word. 
it's fine Building jumbo planes Or taking a ride On a cosmic train Switch on summer From a slot machine Just get what you want If you want Is you can get anything I know we've come a long way We're changing day to day But tell me Where do the children play? children Oh, won't you hurry, the presence is there 
God Oh thou forgiver of sins Bestower of gifts Dispeller of afflictions Verily I beseech thee to forgive The sins of such as have abandoned the
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.